I have few regrets, but one of them is for sure the taking your chips off the table in an investment and then not redeploying it quickly. One side benefit of a 1031 is that you can't do that. You are forced to put your proceeds from sale into that 1031 escrow account and then put them into a new deal. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right, Brenneman Blueprint, back with another listener question episode. If you want to reach out and send a question into me, best way to do that is actually email. Most of these questions I'm responding to now, I've gotten a bunch of LinkedIn and Twitter direct messages and different things or just emails to my um, regular email from folks who know me. But best way to send in a question would be email to our podcast email. So podcast at brenneman.com. So just shoot your questions over. If I get enough of a certain one, be happy to answer it. But at any rate, today's question is from Liam, who is a uh, former tenant of mine, actually, and top listener. So shout out to you, Liam, here. But how do 1031s work and have you ever used them? Yeah, heck yeah, I've used them. It's a great tool for real estate investors that own property long term. A 1031 is really, that's reference to the section of the tax code that covers this, but it's just a method where you can defer paying your capital gains and, and depreciation recapture when your property is sold. You have to follow a strict set of rules where you sell the property, you put the proceeds into an escrow account with a 1031 intermediary, and then within a certain number of time, you need to identify a new property you'll buy and actually close on it. If you do all that, follow all the rules, you defer paying your capital gains or, or depreciation recapture. This doesn't make the tax go away by any means, but it's a deferral. So imagine if in the stock market, every time you bought or sold the stock or a mutual fund or something, you could just not pay any tax yet. You would be able to invest that in the next thing. If you do it right, I guess almost like having a uh, well, like a 401k type account in a way where you just defer paying the tax. Obviously, this is not a 401k, so maybe that's not even the best analogy. And then obviously, too, now we're stepping into the tax realm and I'm not a accountant. I'm not a CPA. I'm not your accountant or your CPA. So this is just for informational purposes only. It should not be relied upon. I've got a full uh, nice disclaimer at the end of the episode. You should definitely check out. But really, this is just kind of get your your mind working on this, this, let's say, this item. How does it work? How could it benefit you? But to actually execute one of these, you definitely are going to need to work with your accountant. If you are in a multi-member LLC, you should definitely get a tax attorney involved to make sure you're doing everything right. 
and then work with your accountant, obviously. So they're going to know um, they're going to be the ones actually doing your tax return. So you need to be talking to them about this. How does it really work or what's the timing, I guess, then um, kind of keep it simple. There's a lot of terms that people throw out there, up leg, down leg. For now, that's not even important. Don't worry about it. The property you're selling, uh, people call that the relinquished property or the down leg. And then the property you're buying would be the replacement property or the up leg. But again, that terminology doesn't matter. It's not here nor there. I mean, the first few 1031s I did, I couldn't remember which was which. It didn't, didn't really matter. The requirements that you're going to have to jump through, like, so there's a few on what you can buy from a value and from a loan standpoint. And then there's also some timing ones. So like, first of all, the property value, what you're selling, the acquisition price of the replacement property or properties must be equal to or greater than the sale price of the relinquished properties. So you sell something for a million dollars and your property you're you're going to buy is only a $800,000 property doesn't work for a 1031. There is a calculation where potentially you could defer a piece of your capital gains, but not the whole thing, but much more in the weeds than we need to get. To keep it simple, you need to be buying something that's equal to or greater uh, than your sale price. And then there's a lot of timing uh hoops to jump through or, or really not really just two two dates to be thinking about so there's two types of 1031 exchanges there's a just the regular exchange so it's called the forward exchange where you sell the property uh, that you own and then you buy the replacement property next and so in that scenario you have 45 days from the sale date of your rel- relinquished property to identify the property or properties you're going to buy and then you have 180 days from the sale date of your sale property to acquire the replacement property or properties. Uh, those timelines, they run concurrently. And it's, it's really easy to sort of to do the identification. I mean, it's like the, with the 1031 intermediary that I use, it's just a sheet of paper that you um, fill out. Obviously, it's on the computer, but it's just a PDF you just type in the properties you want to identify, and then you get it over to them, and then they date stamp it. So it's easy to do. You can send it in at any time. You know, So if you have the property you like right away, you don't wait to the 45th day. You just get it identified right away. And then that's like the normal exchange or whatever forward exchange. Then there's a uh, another way you can do it called the reverse exchange, much more complicated, and you would need to have uh, essentially enough cash in your bank account or wherever to buy your replacement property first. So in a, in a reverse exchange, the taxpayer is going to close on the acquisition of their replacement property before closing on the sale of their relinquished property. So obviously these are more complex to execute and you need to have the funds to acquire that replacement property prior to selling your relinquished property. And also you're going to need to have a lender who's willing to finance this ownership structure. I've done one of these and it's like a little more complicated way you're going to take title to the property because I believe it was like the escrow, the 1031 intermediary was taking title to it for a minute and then they sign it over to you once you complete the sale of your original property. But again, you're using an intermediary for all this, so it's not really too tough to execute. You just, that's all this, the company you're using does. So any questions you have, they know the answers. It's literally the only thing they do. 
this is a lot of rules and stuff, but if just buy a bigger property and follow these timelines and you're basically pretty close to having completed everything. So, and then the timeline uh, for reverse exchanges, it works the same way as the forward exchange where you have 45 days to identify what property or properties you're going to sell and then 180 days to complete the sale of the relinquished properties. You're just sort of doing it in a, in a reverse order. So if you have a bunch of cash sitting around, perfect way to uh, potentially defer your taxes on something and buy. And obviously that's a great strategy where if you're worried, will I be able to find a good deal to buy for the next one? If you do a reverse exchange, you're taking that whole risk out of the equation. So you're you're buying the good deal first. So, so rules around identifying the properties. The only way I've done it is with this first uh, one I'll explain. There's the second way, but it seems complicated and hard to actually pull off in the real world. So, um, you know, really whenever I did this, I was going on to one or two bigger, better properties. And so the first way to identify properties is you can identify up to three properties of any size and then they you know the properties they say they need to be like kind so this we're just talking about this is only can be done with uh with rental properties there were ways where you could do 1031s i think uh with like art or airplanes or stuff before but i think that's that may have gotten eliminated in some of all this tax reform we've had the last five years i don't really know i don't deal with those types of assets so i just know the the real estate game. Way number one to identify is you're identifying three properties of any size, anywhere you want, uh, rental properties. You can switch product types. I mean, I can tell you about a 1031 we did where we went from an office building to a shopping center and then uh, did another 1031 where we sold the shopping center and bought two shopping centers. And when we sell the shopping centers, we could buy a hotel or an apartment or whatever we want. Next, it just needs to be like kind property. And in this scenario, we're just talking about income property. So the second way to identify the properties is you can identify any amount you want on the second option, you can identify, let's say, 10 properties. But the trouble with this option is if they exceed in their aggregate value more than double the relinquished property's value or what you sold it for, then you need to close on 95% of the property, the properties you identified, uh, 95% of the value. So let's say you sold the property uh, and then you identify 10 more in this op- second option. Well, somehow you need to close on 95% of the value of that. So if they're all the same value, you know, you need to close on essentially all 10 of the properties because you need to close on nine and a half of the values of, of the properties just in terms of value. So I've never used this second option, but it is an option. Let's say you want to, um, you sold a building and then you want to buy a portfolio of buildings or something. This is an option to do that. It's just, you need to close on 95%. Uh, whereas for me, I'd rather be just identifying three and then, you know, go one for three and complete my exchange. So, and also too worth mentioning that, um, you know, some of these 1031s I've done, I've, when I've identified three properties, I always identify three. There's no harm in not identifying a full three. There's no punishment, uh, if you will, or penalty for not closing on all three. You just need to replace the value, uh, the property you sold and the, the debt amount. So, you know, use all three choices, never know um, what could happen on the deal you thought you were going to buy. 
And then you don't need to identify properties that you even have under contract. You can just identify whatever you want. So I've always had like a safety property or two on there where it's like some of them were properties of uh, that were not for sale, but I knew the owner really well and thought, okay, at least in my backup plan, maybe I could get the get them to sell me this one. Let's see what else. Okay, what I like to do for timing. So um, 45 days to find a property and identify it from the close of your sale. But ideally, you know, you want to be a, kind of a little bit further along in your transaction, in my opinion, where you don't want to just be on the 44th day just picking out properties or signing the purchase contract then. Like if you what if you get into your due diligence or your physical inspection and there's an issue, now you need to cancel the deal and your 1031 is blown up. So what I like to do is I like to already once the deal I'm selling is the earnest money is non-refundable and I'm confident they're going to close, I start looking for the replacement properties then. So I'm, and I'm already talking to brokers, telling them I'm selling this deal. Once the earnest money goes hard, I'm going to be looking for the replacement properties. So I'm looking, you know, if let's say their earnest money goes non-refundable on day 30, and then they got another 30 days to close, I'm looking 30 days out ahead of the closing ready to go. Uh, so if I find a deal, then like the ideal scenario is I find a deal in those 30 days I'm looking prior to closing. I want to get that under contract uh, prior to my deal, even my sale closing. And I want to start my purchase process. So I'm, I'm always big on communication. So I'm uh, upfront with everybody, with the brokers, with the owners, you know, here's the scenario. Like I'm in a 1031, my property is about to sell or I don't I don't like uh, just hiding information or surprising people. So I uh, maybe to my detriment sometimes over communicate, but I just, just, that's just how I, uh, how I roll. So ideally I get as far along as I can in this replacement property purchase process as early in the game as possible. I don't want to be tying up properties, uh, getting them under contract, doing the physical inspection, letting my earnest money go hard before the deal I'm selling has to earnest money go hard though. So there is a balance. Like a, you can't be looking too early because the deals that you like might be gone already. And then I work my off-market broker channels really hard. I think all the deals we've done 1031s on have been to off-market deals. I don't recall um, ever buying an on-the-market deal for my replacement property. I just, I do you get everybody's attention enough when you're already a known uh, high-quality buyer and then you're in a 1031. So uh, they know you're serious and people will, you know, a lot of these investment properties, it's just like any, you know, everything's for sale at a price. So then, um, you know, I work the off-market broker channels hard. Let's see what else. Um, negatives maybe with a 1031. The only, uh, the real negatives are just if you have, you don't have much deal flow. What I see a lot of people do is they get in a 1031, they sell, then they start looking properties you know day 30 hits they still haven't found anything day 40 comes then they overpay uh they pay a huge premium or buy a bad deal and then maybe that deal has an issue during the physical inspection that they look past they're so motivated by the tax deferral and for me the tax deferral is really just sort of the icing on the cake so to speak you know it's not the end-all be-all why we're doing this you know you still need to buy a good deal obviously I would accept a lower return deal than I otherwise normally would being in a 1031, but I'm not dropping my criteria that much. I'm not buying a 
a horrible deal with a physical issue that I'm just looking past everything because I'm so motivated. I would never do that. But I constantly see deals selling where the people always breaking the record for lowest cap rate, highest price per unit, whatever metric you like, are these 1031 buyers. Don't be that buyer. So you start looking earlier and have put in the work earlier with building those relationships with owners, with brokers, where even if you're in a time crunch, uh, you can still generate good deals. So that's where also if you're a partner of mine or something like that, we are worth our, our value for sure in this instance where we've done this before, we know what we're doing, we have a lot of deal flow, and we're actually going to find a good deal on our 1031 replacement property. We're not going to overpay. We're not going to be breaking records on our uh, replacement property. We're going to you know, find good deals still. So the whole reason with the, to use the 1031 is just if you're selling anyways, why not uh, step up into a bigger property and keep those chips on the table and keep investing. So really sort of my main investing mistakes I feel like I've made have actually been all around taking the chips off the table and not reinvesting them. You know, if I sell a deal and I don't do a 1031, it's inevitable. I regret it. It's like you get this money at sale and then you pay your taxes. You don't invest it right away. A year goes by or you put it in the stock market or crypto or something. And then you you lose money inevitably. And then you're like, geez, I had this much equity in the property. I sold it. I paid all these transaction costs. I paid my taxes. And then I invested in this other thing. And so my advice too is, you know, the 1031s was powerful with them is it forces you to keep your chips on the table. The real negatives though, like, yeah, it could force you to overpay if you have bad deal flow. And, and then on your replacement properties, you have less depreciation expense than you otherwise would. So I could probably do a whole podcast on depreciation and how that works. But in, in a nutshell, depreciation is a, an expense you get to take as a property owner. That's not a cash expense. It's just a tax expense where you, uh, you get to take this deduction and it reduces your taxes year to year greatly. You do have to pay depreciation recapture when you sell, but it's, you have a huge timing benefit where you're taking a deduction today. Uh, and then maybe you sell the property in 20 years, then you pay your depreciation recapture. Typically that rates at 25%. And a lot of people are deducting, having, paying higher income tax on that. So there's also a, uh, tax rate benefit too. You have less depreciation deductions because essentially how it works is you're subtracting your gain off of the um, basis of the new property you're buying. So this is like way more in the weeds than it needs to be, but just know you have some some amount less of depreciation. So, um, But that's not the end all be all, uh, just having that be a, a sole like thing to keep you away from doing a 1031. And then like the most powerful 1031 strategy there probably is, is you keep doing 1031s your whole investing career. So you 1031 property after property after property after property, and you hold it until you pass away. So at that point, your heirs would get a, a step up in basis. Obviously, if you have a very high uh, net worth, uh, high estate in terms of your, your assets, you're going to have to pay estate taxes where those you can't uh, get around unless you use like a trust or something. Um, but you could keep deferring the taxes the capital gains, the depreciation recapture, essentially your whole life, then you hold the property, then when you pass away, your heirs get their basis stepped up to that new value, today's market value, and the capital gains are never paid. So 
you want the most powerful combination of strategies. You do the keep layering on these 1031s, one after another, after another, after another, and then you sit on the property. That's 1031 in a nutshell, and then kind of some strategies around that. And then, yeah, have I ever done one? Uh, Yeah, hell yeah, I have. The one that I'm the most proud of the success, I'd say, was the first ones I did, um, probably more than any, just because of where they're at today. So the third deal I bought in 2009 was an office building called Eagle Point 2. We bought it for $4.4 million. We put 930000 down, executed our business plan with the office building. And, you know, a few years later, we sold it for $5.5 million. Uh, so in total on that deal, I think the distributions, they were like almost $3 million. And uh, on sale, we got $1.8 million back at the closing. And so that goes into your 1031 escrow account. And then we use that to buy a $7.1 million shopping center. So we went from a $4.4 million deal, when you think of the purchase prices, stepped up to a $7 million property. And then from there, we made that $7 million property worth uh, just to eight something. And then um, our $1.8 million down on that deal turned into $3.4 million. We took the $3.4 million and we bought two shopping centers with that money, uh, one for $9 million and one for $8-something million. So if you think about it, just real basic level, we started out, you had a $4 million property, $4.4 million, and you're, you're growing the snowball, if you will, of assets to now where we have $17 million of property. And $17 million of property makes a lot more than a four, $4 million of property. So every year on those two shopping centers we bought, the cash flow and the loan pay down, it's 800 something thousand a year now. And again, we put in $930,000 initially. So I'm a pretty simple person on some of this. So the way I think of it is on that initial money, our return is almost 100% a year. 800 something thousand divided by 930,000 is almost 100% return per year. And that's with no appreciation of the property. That's just cash flow. So income minus all of our expenses, what's left, and how much we amortize the loan or pay the loan down every year. So it's a really, really, really powerful tool in this real estate game, which is all about making money slow. So um, yeah, definitely glad you sent in that question, Liam. Uh, 1031s are great. You know, you see a lot of people trying to make money quick in real estate, fix and flips or wholesaling deals and stuff. But when you think about like the families that have really gotten wealthy, you know, in New York or LA or Chicago or wherever, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the whoever's, they weren't flipping houses. You know, they were owning prime assets in really good places and sitting on them for generations. So they were taking advantage of similar strategies, uh, whether they had the 1031 back there. I don't, I don't know what year that came out, but it's a similar strategy where they're holding it for, for lifetimes, where they're not you know, trading in and out of things year to year. 1031s are great. For especially for long-term investors, uh, and yeah, I've done done a half dozen or so, and plan to do do many more, um, and keep stepping into larger deals as uh, as I advance in my investing career. And would would recommend people use them as well. You know, again, I have few regrets, but one of them is for sure the taking your chips off the table in an investment and then not redeploying it quickly. Using a 1031, one side benefit of a 1031 is that you can't do that. You um, you are forced to put your proceeds from sale into that 1031 escrow account and then put them into a new deal. So uh, that's a plus two in addition to obviously all these tax benefits. So 
Thanks for the question, Liam. Appreciate it. Um, and if you have a question, feel free, uh, send it over podcast at brennaman.com. Uh, that's our podcast email. So you can hit us up there and I'll be happy to answer questions we get sent, uh, or at least if we get enough of them on a certain topic, I'd be happy to dive into it. So, um, just, I think you guys all know the drill by now, but don't forget to leave a rating and review on whatever platform you're, you're listening on, uh, or, or if you're watching on YouTube, I mean, that's really how the podcast grows is with people liking it or sharing it. Uh, you know, all these platforms can tell how much people engage with the content, how long they listen to, uh, what part of the episode do they share it? Do they like it? And so that, that helps us grow. So whatever you can do to leave a rating review, subscribe, share, whatever it is, uh, would definitely appreciate it. And don't forget to check out our website, brendamen.com, where we have a ton of free resources on real estate investing. I have a blog. Sometimes I'm dropping a, a blog every couple of weeks. Sometimes it's like it takes a couple months. But if you're into more of a written content type thing, we have a blog uh, as well as a bunch of different downloads on real estate investing. If you go to our download section on our website, we've got a passive investing guidebook. We've got a trends report. We've got a breakdown on how interest rates have affected rents and their correlations with other things. Um, so a bunch of different stuff on our website. And obviously you can invest in deals with us as well. If um, you don't want to be out here doing 1031s on your own and you'd rather just kind of partner up with somebody and, and have them lead the lead the way, do all the work, then you'd be welcome to invest with us where you can just go to our website and click invest now in the upper right corner sign up and you'll be on our on our investor list uh it's accredited investors only so if, if you know that criteria you can just google that too what that is but um uh, we'd love to have more investors on our list and anybody who's a podcast listener uh be a part of our community of investors so appreciate you being on and we'll see you on the next episode if you learned something from today's show leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.